podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. Globally, much of the emphasis in food production is the generic mass production and distribution of food. But is this the role for Australia? Is Australia a major player in global food production? Or has it, or indeed should it, become a specialist supplier of niche products to a growing global affluent middle class with specific aspirations and demands? There are few industries where Australia's place as a specialist supplier is more obvious than grain-fed beef. 30 years ago, when I was a young agricultural scientist just entering the profession, Grain-fed beef was an insignificant market in Australia. But these days, Australian producers have the ability to raise over 1 million cattle on grain at any one time. Whilst grass-fed beef still dominates the local market in Australia, Australian producers are increasingly being asked for luxury foods like grain-fed beef to fill a demand in Asian markets. So where did this growth come from? And why is Australia part of this trend? To help answer these questions and also to look at the future of grain-fed beef in Australia, our reminder today is Kevin Roberts. He's represented the grain-fed industry at the highest international level, especially in Asia and the USA, as the National President of the Lot Feeders Association of Australia. He also operated a 20,000-head feedlot west of the Great Divide in Queensland for over 30 years, fattening cattle on both grass and on grain. Kevin has also been responsible for marketing Australian beef to Asian customers, so he comes more than well qualified to be our Agriminder today. Welcome to Agriminders, Kevin. Uh, Thank you very much, Chris. It's great to be with you again. So, Kev, the lot feeding business has grown from when you and I first got into, gee, we're ageing both of us now, but when we first got into this agricultural uh, animal production business um, 30 or 40 years ago, we've gone from an insignificant you know, amount of uh, grain-fed animals to over a million cattle on grain at any one time in Australia. What's actually been the stimulus for this? Well, the growth really come about with the opening of the Japanese market uh, back in the late 70s. Today, Japan is still one of our biggest customers for uh, grain-fed meat, particularly for for the high-end premium uh, market. So uh, once the uh, the world become aware of uh, the quality that can be delivered by uh, grain-fed meat or grain-fed beef, it really uh, grew uh, over time, particularly in Asia. So why why do you think this middle class, which seems to have uh, lots of money up in Asia at the moment, why do you think they've taken a liking to grain-fed meat, meat rather than our traditional grass-fed type of product? The Asian and particularly the Japanese and uh, also in latter years China, they use their meat or their beef to flavour their meals rather than to provide them with uh, protein. So when you say the flavour, you're saying that that Asian customers can taste if the animal's been eating grass? Uh, Yes, indeed. Uh, I have experienced firsthand... uh, uh, discerning customers in Asia that can tell quite quickly the difference between grass-fed and grain-fed. They're not saying that uh, one is uh, bad, 
but the difference is they can taste probably the marbling that we uh, we aim for in the high-end markets with the Wagyu cattle and the premium Angus cattle. So uh, it's the the flavour that comes through in the intramuscular fat. When I was up in China a couple of years ago, I remember going in a shop and I saw a beautiful piece of marbled Wagyu um, uh, scotch fillet sitting up there and I saw the price, the equivalent in our dollars of $60. I, I, $60 and I thought, oh, well, that's not that much different to here until I saw it was $60 for 100 grams. Um, you know, I mean, that's huge money. You know, I've always thought of China, particularly where I was in rural China, to be all peasantry and, you know, not that rich, but yet they had this on the shelf and people seem to be buying it. I mean, that is the ultimate luxury food, surely. Yeah, it's staggering uh, to see uh, the prices that uh, you've just talked about and uh, I've seen them in Japan uh, on many trips to Japan. Again, Chris, I remind you that the Asian people and particularly those that are discerning the 100 grams, for instance, is about flavouring the the family meal. It's not about uh, providing protein. And is there a difference? You mentioned how there are different segments in the market. How does it vary between, say, Japan and Korea and China and other countries, that, that Vietnam, for example, or other places that might buy our beef? Chris, the best way to, to describe that, I believe, is that there are different cuts that go to Japan that may well go to South Korea off the same animal. So uh, when uh, beef in Australia is processed, and this goes for grain-fed beef and for grass-fed beef, we have over 100 destinations worldwide that uh, one animal could end up in 20 or 30 different locations. So it's... uh, it's the segmentation of uh, of the beef cuts from the one animal uh, is staggering. Kevin, how diverse is our marketing of grain-fed beef? Are we very locked into, say, Japan or China as our biggest markets, or do we have enough spread that we can be resilient to the political um, comings and goings of uh, different leaderships and, uh, and different pressures? Resilience uh, has developed over time. And that's why we've now got a hundred customers. And I use the hundred as indicative. But rest assured, if China, South Korea, Japan, if any one of those pulls back from the market for whatever reasons that they do so, there is uh, a message that reverberates down through the industry, right from the marketing, right through to the cattle producer. Um, We've seen over the years that uh, when one of the major users of beef, not just just grain-fed beef, whenever one of those major users of our product, Australian product, uh, pulls up, it pulls the market up. So, Kevin, you've also been involved in the contract feeding operation where you're actually feeding cattle for somebody else and you just charge them the feed cost plus accommodation costs and so on. 
Um, and if the customer wants the, the cattle to be fed on, you know, green crushed olives and produce olive wagyu, well, then you'll do it. You just charge them appropriately. So how is the trend in uh, in the requirements of your customers for contract feeding of cattle, how has their requirements changed over the time you've been doing that? Chris, it's uh, been a, a, an involvement uh, over time. It's somewhat a bit like a fad, I'm afraid. In this country, we're able to provide a lot of uh, natural products. Grain uh, varies from wheat, barley, uh, sorghum and corn. So we've got access to all of those uh, feedstuffs. We've uh, helped market barley beef. We've helped market olive brand beef using... Uh, olive oil uh, in the ration, obviously barley for barley-fed beef. And it depends. Uh, Some customers, uh, particularly out of Japan, um, have wanted to get a a niche in their marketing and market barley beef. Um, So it comes and goes, uh, really, But uh, at the end of the day, the nutrition of the diet remains uh, high uh, so as to provide uh, good growth and keep the animal uh, healthy and safe. So how many of your customers would give you a recipe of what they want fed and how many would just leave it up to you and your nutritionist to give them the most economic weight gain? In my time, uh, Chris, we uh, would have had probably three or four uh, out of a dozen customers uh, want specific uh, diets. Very small. Again, it's this trying trying to get uh, a toe in the door in the marketplace. Uh, in places like Japan and, and China and Korea, uh, within their own markets, um, it's uh, it's a very aggressive marketing that they uh, undertake. Okay. And what sort of a premium do farmers get in Australia for going to all that sort of trouble of sort of meeting that market rather than just whacking out stuff straight off pasture? One could jest a little bit and say not enough premium. But uh, factually, uh, the premiums are there, but it's uh, like any uh, industry – We have ups and downs. We have uh, high points and low points uh, in a marketing cycle. Most people that are in the feedlot industry, most people that are in agriculture are there for the long haul. They're not there for a quick uh, get rich quick. So why Australian? Why do people buy their beef from Australia? Food safety. You reckon Uh, that's the biggest driver? No question in my mind. Uh, uh, about uh, 25, 30, almost 30 years ago, the Australian feedlot industry developed a quality assurance program or a system, really. It's not a program. It's a, a system of managing uh, the throughput of cattle through uh, Australian feedlots. And the beef, broader beef industry has also put in place stringent uh, quality systems to provide food safety in particular and uh, to manage uh, animal welfare, etc. So 
I'm certain that uh, Australia is able to market against giants like uh, the American system, uh, where they are a hundred times bigger than we are, and and yet we're able to compete in markets such as Japan, uh, China, and uh, South Korea in particular, and many other Asian countries. Food safety. So there's obviously some social issue questions about factory farming, as the urban Australian people like to call it. What sort of social licence requirements are there for someone to get into that? Obviously, people like the idea of uh, just having the beast sitting out in the paddock with a bit of grass sticking out of its mouth. They think that looks natural and there's not so much issue. But as soon as you put it in a yard and even though it's being well fed and uh, all those sorts of things, what requirements are they and expenses the farmer has to go to in order to produce this product that they're looking for in Asia. One of the reasons that the uh, Australian Lot Feed has developed uh, uh, the National Feedlot Accreditation Program was to ensure that all the animal welfare, animal uh, health and environmental issues were managed so as to not bring harm to livestock or to bring harm to the environment. And there are very stringent uh, state and, in fact, uh, industry requirements for people to be in the lot feeding industry. So it's easy enough to get in, but you need to make sure that you're able to uh, be audited annually and uh, and you stick to the program that uh, provides uh, safe food, and we look after the environment. So where would animal welfare rate in that audit? You know, when the people are walking around the feedlot, what are they looking for in terms of um, the animals being perceived as much as anything to be happy? During the audit process, it's really just a snapshot in time. Every feedlot that's part of the National Feedlot Accreditation Program uh, has to document their procedures, they have to show the training that they give to their staff to ensure that uh, every animal, not just the ones that are on feed when you're audited, but every animal that goes through the uh, the feed yard basically has a ticket that uh, shows that it has been treated whenever it's been ill, if it's been injured, that treatments are prescribed and overseen by veterinary science. So there's no chance of, uh, of people being able to mistreat their animals, but cover that up. And how important is that part of the, you mentioned food safety was important to the Asian markets. How important to them is the animal welfare side of, uh, of the process? Look, I think that uh, it wouldn't be right to try and separate off the different elements. So I think the world has taken very seriously all the elements that go into animal production. So the Japanese, the Chinese, uh, all the people that I know need to be confident that the the animal itself is uh, being treated uh, humanely, 
We're not uh, putting uh, uh, chemicals or waste products into uh, the environment that are going to be harmful. So I think that the awareness that has grown, that I've seen grow over the, the 35, 40 years that I've been involved in, uh, in the cattle industry, uh, has been uh, quite large strides have been made. And do all our competitors in places like Brazil and all those sort of countries, are they sort of following, is this a global standard or, or are we way out leading the pack here? It would probably be uh, improper of me to say we're way out leading the pack. But there is no doubt the reason that Australia competes so well with the giant America and South America, they have had to catch up. We, uh, we certainly have been, uh, uh, particularly from an environmental point of view, the Australian industry has been quite rigorous in the way it's managed uh, its feed yards environmentally. So, yes, I think we're still ahead, but the world standard is now really what drives sales around the world. And how is this transparent to the Asian customers who, who might be keen to be sure that it is Australian, you know, that it is our food safety and not just a rebadged product from somewhere else? Is there some unique system like the cotton industries and others are put into place where they can be sure that that piece of meat did actually come from an Australian feedlot or out of Australia? Yes, indeed. Again, I've mentioned uh, the, uh, the quality assurance program. All certified grain-fed meat has to come from an NFIS feedlot. That gets into the processing uh, industry and they carry forward with their own quality system and all meat that leaves Australia does so under certification by AQUIS, the Australian uh, Quarantine Service. So a simple way of describing uh, uh, the system is uh, do as you say and say as you do. And that carries all the way through from paddock all the way to the supermarkets. You've got to understand that uh, supermarkets around the world deliver most of uh, produce to uh, the, the customers and they are very savvy when it comes to traceability. That's the important word, traceability. So when you were um, running the Lot Feeders Association, you would have been involved in marketing Australia as a supplier of grain-fed meat over to Asia. How did you go about doing that? Did you totally rely on food safety or what was your, you walked into the room with a bunch of buyers who are looking at price and they're looking at quality and different aspects, what would be your first thing to say, well, the reason you need to buy it from Australia is not because it's the cheapest, but because of X? Food safety. It would be food safety. It was always food safety, uh, Chris. Uh, if it comes to price, we wouldn't even get our big toe in the door. Yes, it, there are some cuts that we uh, can probably market on price, but when you've got countries like uh, the United States, uh, Brazil, they can put together containers, 20-ton containers of chilled and frozen cuts, one singular cut of meat. 
Now, Australia has traditionally uh, marketed uh, what they call natural fall, which is the uh, more or less the entire animal goes to Japan in the in days gone by. But we're becoming more and more diverse as the market has uh, uh, changed over time. We now are putting together uh, more singular cuts into specific markets. What about the Australian market, Kev? I mean, when I was a young fellow, it was all grass-fed meat. And even today, people boast about the fact, you know, that they've that they're serving grass-fed meat, particularly restaurants, because they think that that implies some sort of um, uh, environmentally superior product. Is that changing in the supermarkets as well? Uh, certainly, Chris. Uh, we've seen almost uh, a full turn of the circle. Um, in recent times, it seems to have become fashionable uh, to go down the it's grass-fed um, I get somewhat uh, disturbed when I see that sort of approach taken because all red meat, all beef in this country is healthy and safe to eat. The way I see it is that the supermarkets in Australia look very closely as to how they can uh, manage their sales to their uh, consumers. And I think what we've seen happen is that the supermarkets once were boasting to have grain-fed meat on their shelves, and the two majors that I can think of now prefer not to actually call it other than high-quality beef. From everything you've said, it sounds very much like this whole idea that Australia was the kind of food bowl of Asia feeding the starving millions, from the beef industry's perspective, is just not correct. You know, we're, we're niche marketers catering to a market who are telling us what they want. Would, you, would that be a fair summary? Indeed. Look, uh, Australia's big in coal. Australia's big in iron ore but we are very small when it comes to most other forms of agriculture. So we have to, to compete, we have to have systems approach, we have to have safe eating quality uh, products, and we fit into markets that uh, are discerning uh, with those uh, features in uh, food safety and animal welfare and uh, environmental management. So you and I in 10 years will be sitting having a beer somewhere. What, what sort of a beef industry are we going to be looking at in about 10 years' time, Kev? We will see changes. Uh, that's inevitable. I suspect that uh, there will always be a market for high-quality, safe-eating red meat. You think it'll still be dominated by grass-fed product, or do you think we're going to go more and more down the road of finishing cattle in intensively on grain? I think it'll. I think the the numbers uh, will be somewhat similar. I don't see that there will be big changes uh, in the the difference between the numbers of grass-fed and grain-fed. I think what you'll see, though, in the grass or the pasture-fed 
industry is you'll see a lot more improvement of pastures, etc. I think we'll see uh, a much more intensification of uh, the broader industry uh, with uh, improved pastures, legumes, etc. Do you think we're going to continue to see the growth in demand for meat from Asia and these places, or is that peak now? Where you know where where is the future growth in demand going to come from? I think Asia, without any doubt, is uh, is where the growth will come from. It's been proven properly by now that as uh, countries improve their social uh, order, then their demand for higher quality meats, red meats in particular, uh, has grown. Well, Kevin, thank you very much. Kevin Roberts, thank you very much for being our AgriMinder today and bringing your insight of over 40 years' experience in this industry, both at the high end talking to the buyers and, and at the grassroots level producing the product. I think you've opened our eyes to where we're at and the reality of uh, food production in Australia as regards red meat, and we really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Chris, and I'm going to take you up on that uh, beer in 10 years' time. It'll be your shout. Sounds good to me. We've heard from a number of our agaminders about the power of Australia's provenance story overseas, clean and green. Without a doubt, overseas consumers love Australian products. Whether it's our milk or our red meat, international customers are willing to pay good money for food that they know not only tastes great, but is produced safely and humanely. The mental transition from the role of red meat from being 250 grams of protein to around 50 grams of flavouring, and yet costing about the same, is as radical as it is enlightening as we try to understand the customer-driven overseas demand for expensive grain-fed beef in lieu of the cheaper grass-fed beef. And while these demands may not always seem to make sense, if this is what consumers are asking for, Australian producers would be unwise not to take advantage of Australia's strong provenance story overseas and deliver where the demand is. The customer may not always be right, but the customer is always the customer, and it is a mysterious and unpredictable beast. I'm Chris Russell. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by Chris Russell and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Produced by Jennifer Goggin, edited by Lindsay Green, and with sound production by Matt Nikolich.